You know, don't look at it as a, as a joke. Don't think of it as, you know, oh, I don't have to do this. Somebody else will pick this up or, or, or whatever. Like be that person that's going to pick it up because literally everybody, everybody knows that if everybody pitched in just a little bit, these problems would almost completely go away. But nobody, nobody takes it seriously enough. Welcome to Animalia, where we discuss conservation and climate topics every week. Today, we are with Jake Colvin, who is a social media content creator, focuses a lot on ocean content, and we are going to be discussing all things conservation and climate from a content perspective in today's world of social media. I'm James. And I'm Nare. Um, but Jake, thanks for joining us. Uh, for those that, that don't know Jake, um, do you want to just quickly give your uh, your YouTube, TikTok handles and just a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. First off, uh, thanks for having me. It's a really awesome opportunity to be able to speak with your organization and um, help bring a little bit more attention and awareness to, like you said, this lingering problem that's, that's always going on no matter what other problems are going on. Um, my TikTok, YouTube, all social media accounts are jake.pnw. I do focus the majority of my content on ocean-themed material. I'm a creator out of Newport, Oregon, here in the United States. And um, it's, it's a big passion of mine to teach people about the ocean, teach people about conservation, and uh, ultimately make a, difference, make a difference for the oceans using social media. In the last 18 months... Your especially on TikTok, as TikTok has sort of exploded uh, onto the scene in a big way, um, particularly in the U.S. market. It was, it's of course, been big in China for uh, a few years before that. But your your presence on TikTok has sort of grown dramatically with that. Um, I believe you're up to six over six and a half million followers on TikTok. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I think doing something like north of 175 million views a month on TikTok as well. Yes, that's correct. About 150 million on average views per month, um, going on 6.7 million followers on TikTok alone. Uh, I think just over 7 million combined total followers across all social media platforms. And what what is it like knowing you know the sort of influence you have and the reach you have that continues to grow pretty quickly. What's been that journey like for you? It's been incredible. I think it's it's growing a lot faster than I can handle on my own. Um, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of power and a lot of influence behind a community this large. So right now, before I'm making any kind of like power moves to really make a difference, I'm more in the growth and and sort of strategy stages of it. I know that I want to accomplish something great for the ocean. I know I'm going to need an army of people who care behind me. Um, but I'm, I'm still looking for ultimately the best ways to help make a difference and the best ways to sort of uh, make trends encouraging other people to help me make a difference. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it, and I'm still trying to figure out the right way to do it. So right now, it's it's great knowing that I have a huge community behind me, but at the same time, I'm not ready to make any sort of power moves until I discuss it with the right people and find actually find the best way to go about uh, making a, a really big positive difference on a consistent basis. 
how how did your relationship with the ocean start like when at what age you started caring more about it how did you learn about the problems and so on how has that evolved into what you have right now and then your aspiration to make that even bigger yeah well it it all started for me back in about 2005 i was 14 and i did some work with oregon state university hatfield marine science centers uh, ecology teams and invasive species experts. Um, I was sort of lucky and and fortunate to meet with these scientists and work with them over a, over a summer, and it was a very interesting work. It was things that I, I problems that I never knew existed. You know, invasive plants and animal species that are in organs, rivers, estuaries, oceans. And just the amount of negative impact that each invasive species plays, um, and so that was that was back in 2005 when I first got into it. I actually moved away from the coast for about 10 years, and it was all. I think everybody sort of has a natural draw, a natural connection to the ocean. And for me, it was just. I think it was a little bit more than the average person. When I moved away from the coast, I wanted nothing more but to move back. So for 10 years of really struggling and trying to, to move myself and my family back over here to the coast, we finally made it happen. Um, once we got back over here, I just wanted to spend as much time around the ocean, around the beaches as I could, because I just felt this natural draw, this natural connection to the ocean. And while I was out there, you know, I just, I wanted to sort of record and, and share ocean content, ocean animal content with other people who who maybe aren't as close to the ocean as they want to be. You know, I wanted to bring the ocean to people who, who aren't able to visit it on a regular basis. Um, so when I, when I moved over here, I was sharing those sort of um, ocean themed content with the people who aren't able to see it on a regular basis. More and more people were enjoying it. And I was just trying to find more and more creative ways to, to show people things that they've never seen. And one thing that, sort of clicked in my memory was, wow, back in 2005, I worked with these very interesting invasive isopods. And I, I thought to myself, I bet a lot of people would really be sort of shocked by this, you know, such a small animal causing such a big problem. And it's a unique looking animal as well. It sort of has this oddly satisfying, you know, feeling that it gives you when a parasite's taken out of a shrimp. But um, I, I wanted to share this uh, creature, this invasive species, this this ecosystem, uh, this problem in the ecosystem with other people, and just try to bring a, awareness to it. Um, and so that's sort of where the whole shrimp parasite things came from. But uh, on on the bigger spectrum, my my goal, my agenda is to just raise awareness about the problems that the ocean is facing, and like I said, build that community of people who care and want to make a difference. So for the folks who don't know your channel, you have a uh, unique and special relationship with shrimp. Yes. <laughs> um, and it sounds like what you're, what you're saying is that relationship actually started really with the isopod, not the shrimp. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. I mean, without this isopod, this invasive isopod um, that, that's thought to have been brought over from Eastern Asia, um, whether it was by trading vessels or, or whatnot, uh, scientists discovered it back in the late 70s. If it weren't for this isopod infestation, 
the scientists wouldn't have been studying the shrimp in the first place, you know. So back in 2005, when I first started working with the the invasive science team here, I wouldn't have worked with shrimp at all. They wouldn't ha have had anything to study about these shrimp in the first place. So the only reason I'm uh, have a relationship with the shrimp and I and I bring awareness about the shrimp is yeah it's all because of this invasive isopod that was brought over from Eastern Asia back in the late 70s early 80s. An invasive species. I mean, this we're sort of uh, we we're going through one one of these experiences right now with the giant Asian hornet, mm -hmm. uh, which got some brief social media attention uh, with the sort of not clever name murder hornet, uh, which sort of sends the wrong direction, wrong signal in a lot of ways. But um, but it's it it is an invasive species that is going to impact. Uh, you know, sort of honeybee populations, which have already been greatly impacted um, in North America. And so, you know, the invasive species, this is sort of tied with just a migration of people, right? I mean, like invasive species have, have, have moved from continent to continent, primarily um, on the backs of, of, of human travelers and human trade. And they can really sort of disrupt an entire ecosystem and force an ecosystem to adapt what for the i don't know how 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 deeply you can get into this uh jake but for the isopod is it is it particularly targeting shrimp um does it does it invade any other ocean species and what has been the effect on a larger scale um of uh, on shrimp populations here in the us that's a great question and i uh am able to answer that Let's see, the, uh, the, sh the invasive isopod parasites, uh, once they came here, they, they found a host, which is the Eupogebia mud shrimp, that they could easily, uh, I believe it's because of the size of their gill flaps and uh, on their carapace, they're able to, to swim into the shrimp's gill flaps, attach themselves by hanging onto those gill flaps, and then feed off of the shrimp. As far as we know, these isopods aren't affecting any other animals like fish or anything like that just the estuary shrimp. They affect the Eupogebia pugitensis mud shrimp, and, uh, excuse me, they mostly affect the Eupogebia pugitensis mud shrimp, but they also affect the Neotripea, the Neotripea californiensis sand shrimp. The mud shrimp on a much larger scale than the sand shrimp. I think for the mud shrimp, they affect 90% of all female mud shrimp, and about 50% of all male mud shrimp. And I know it's far less on the sand shrimp. So it's it has a castrating effect on the mud shrimp, and it's preventing the female shrimps from producing and laying eggs. So the isopods are very smart animals. They, they, know, they know that the mud shrimp are cyclic feeders. They feed on a cycle. And they only attach themselves to the shrimps when the shrimps are feeding and healthy. So it's very interesting how, how these isopods um, are able to understand that about the shrimp and know when and when not to attach to the shrimp. So what it's doing is it's causing a castrating effect on these shrimp. It's preventing them from reproducing and laying eggs. And what that's causing, that's, that's causing the shrimp population to decrease dramatically. So my thoughts my thoughts are when the mud shrimp population is completely taken out, we already know that they're affecting the sand shrimp on a very small level, but when the mud shrimp are gone, their next best, their next best thing is to move on to the sand shrimp. 
they're going to do the exact same thing to the sand shrimp once the mud shrimp are gone. Once the sand shrimp are gone, all these isopods are here with no food. What are they going to attach to next? Your your sort of strategy from a content standpoint seems to be, you know, sort of creating a lot of uh, sort of kinship, you know, with uh, with the animals in your videos. Um, you anthropomorphize them a bit by giving them names and um, kind of giving them personalities. You've done um, done this with jellyfish and and mud shrimp. Um, can you tell us more about this approach and? you know, why you've chosen it and, and the, what the feedback has, has been from, uh, from your viewers. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think people tend to care just a little bit more when you give uh, a name to an animal, you know, you, that's, that's essentially what I want to do is personalize it. You know, I want people to look at the shrimp no differently than they would look at any other living animal, like say a companion animal, a dog or a cat, you know, these, these are just, just as animalistic as any other animal, you know, they're, they're living things. They, they have, um, you know, same life patterns as other animals do. They reproduce just like humans, they eat just like humans. Um, and they should be cared for just as much as any other animal. If they're, if they become extinct because of an invasive species that was brought over by humans, then we just took an entire species of animal off the planet because of our carelessness you know so giving these animals names giving them personalities is is just my attempt at creating a stronger feeling towards these animals more compassion towards these animals um, just so that the ocean can get the help it needs you know if 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 we're not making people feel so deeply and compassionate about animals they're not going to actually take action. They're just, they're just going to look at it and they're, they're going to care, but they're not actually going to be willing to take action. If, if we're giving um, more of a relationship between a person and an animal, they're going to be more willing to take action. That's always been my thought. And that's why I personalize it. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I think what you're doing is fascinating also because um, we've been discussed discussing during this podcast and um even i'm outside it a lot how much the animals that we don't know much about or don't have a direct relationship with um are even more in danger they kind of need a voice that is not there even if like looking at like disney cartoons or movies or animals that we um see all the time and then those that that we don't and uh, the pangolin was um a perfect example of this and now you're talking about shrimp um um, I think this content kind of strategy is amazing. Um, but from you've been doing this for a while already, and your following is growing. Do you think that it's resonating the way you would like it to? Do you think people are starting to think about these problems, or it's still something they consume and then forget about it? Do you get any kind of? Um, uh, is there a conversation going between you and your audience or you think it's too early for that yet? And maybe your next steps will, will be more oriented to get that reaction. I think we're on the right path. I think people are starting to care a little bit more each time they see one of these videos. Even if it, if I post a video that's, you know, isn't related to a shrimp, you know, people are always saying post more shrimp videos. So which that leads me to believe that people are thinking about these animals, these shrimp, when 
just in their free time. You know, people are just thinking about these animals on a regular basis. Maybe it's the satisfying effect uh, that it has, but the more they watch it, the, the more of a relationship they build and the more they care about these shrimp. I've had several people say to me, oh, I've stopped, even, even though it's a different species of shrimp, um, have said to me, you know, I've stopped eating shrimp now. Or, or people will tell me like, oh, I, w- I want to go out and I want to help. I want to remove parasites, even even though removing parasites is not going to solve the problem. You know, I just do this to raise awareness and, and to, you know, make people care just a little bit more. You know, people are wanting to find ways to help. Um, like I said, I don't have the perfect solution right now. So my focus right now is growth. My focus is to build that big community so that when the op- when the opportunity comes for our community to help, we're going to be prepared. And so um, I think, I hope that answers your question. Um, Yes, it does. And I think it's um, very important work that needs to be done. Um, So thank you for that. You could chat a little bit about sort of the, the sort of both sides of anthropomorphism. Um, For folks that don't know what that is, it's essentially, you know, kind of humanizing uh, wildlife. you know, in, in Jake's terms, it's giving them names and some personality. We see this throughout media. Conservationists uh, have mixed feelings about this, right? Because on one hand, it does certainly help people identify with these animals, and you know, especially an animal like a shrimp, uh, which we, we do it we do it all the time with dogs and cats. There are pets that are domesticated animals are living with us, um, but you know, as we get further into the wild ecosystem and, and smaller organisms. Um, there is a positive impact of it, as you mentioned, Jake, of creating creating that connection, creating that bond. What conservationists will also say is it can have a negative impact in terms of, I think, what we see particularly with animals like sloths and lions, where we we anthropomorphize them to the point where we expect to hang out with them, and uh, we look at them, we look at any animal as a friend, um, as a companion, um, and, and most wildlife should not be a friend or companion um, for people. They should be respected um, as wildlife, right? Um, do you do you have any concern over that? I, you know, let's take a case where, I don't know if someone took a mud shrimp and put it in a jar uh, as their friend um, and named it Larry and uh, kept Larry in their kitchen sink in a, in a jar, which is obviously not where a mud shrimp belongs. That mud shrimp is probably going to, going to die. Um, but you know, what are your what are your thoughts on that, Jake? And where do you where do you where do you think the line should be drawn? That's a good question. I think I think that is um, a very real and respectable concern that environmentalists might have. Um, for me, like I said, I, I try to make it as clear as possible to people that my goal with removing these parasites isn't to remove all the parasites. I explained to people that um, removing these parasites or attempting to remove these parasites yourself without proper training, without um, being in in the right environmental circle of of scientists, what you could end up doing is hurting yourself, hurting the shrimp, or damaging the ecosystem. That's why I, I try to make it as clear as possible to people to not try this yourself, not because I don't want you to do it, but because it's not the right thing to do unless you know what you're doing. And most people would have no idea what they're doing. So if I see somebody commenting saying, oh, can I come out and, and help you do this? You know, I, expl- I, I explain to them, 
it's not going to make a difference if you come out and do this. It won't be helping. In fact, it, it might be damaging if we do this without raising awareness in the end. So um, the, th the thing about these shrimp is they're in such a small area um, and nobody even really knows where they are. And that's the way I kind of want to keep it, you know, because I, I, the last thing I want is an army of my army doing the wrong thing coming out and trying to remove all these parasites. So um, that's one concern that I always have, you know, how can I ensure that people don't do this, don't come out and try to do this. So that's a real concern that I have as well. And um, the only thing I can do is work closely with the uh, lead scientists on this matter and get input from them and follow their advice. So John Chapman here at the Oregon State University's Hatfield Marine Science Center, working closely with him to make sure that we do it the the correct and professional way. And it's great, and it's great to hear that you you are working with scientists because a lot of social media content creators that do create wildlife content uh, have no interaction with science or conservationists whatsoever. And one of the things that really pains me is, you know, when I see, so I don't know if you know this, Jake, but um, sloth populations are really being depleted right now. And it's primarily because there has been such a, a rush into getting your picture with the sloth because so many, um, you know, so many people have posted these, these photos and videos online and sloths are, you know, sort of gentle, warm creatures. Um, but it's not so much the holding a sloth in ice in like in a vacuum, that is such a big, big, big issue. What's happening now is a lot of companies essentially across Central America where sloths uh, live in the wild are ripping them out of the wild and creating sort of selfie centers. Um, so tourists can come in and get their selfie with the sloth and these sloths die within, within months. And a lot of times, um, you know, in these centers, and then they go even a step further and they call them rehab centers and conservations just to sort of put a glossy, glossy kind of, you know, um, wrapper on it. So people are like, oh, well, they're, they're, these are rescued sloths and, and 90, 90% of the time they're not at all. Um, and a lot of this is rooted in social media. And, and, you know, I think when I look at these creators that are, um, let's say holding sloths, I think they have big hearts, um, and right intentions in the same way that I, you know, the, the people that actually work at SeaWorld often love orcas, but they're just not able to realize sort of the, like the system that they're a part of is actually really damaging that animal. What do you say to those content creators? And, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if there is a sort of community of sort of the wildlife creators on YouTube or TikTok that you connect with that you guys are all kind of a sub community behind the scenes. And what are your thoughts on this topic and how do we combat it? Because this content performs well, it's hard to tell that person they're doing a bad thing because they're saying, I'm trying to create love for the animal. I'm trying to create love for sloths in this case. Um, and more people that see my videos, see my photos are going to love this animal, but they're really sensationalizing the wrong behavior that is actually, you know, materially translating to uh, losing the species. Um, so what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think uh, content creators should get uh, professional advice from from environmentalists who know exactly the problems that the specific animal is facing. Get advice from them. 
ask them the best way to go about creating content that's actually going to benefit the animals and not just not just make people care more about the animals, but create content that's uh, going to they sh they should speak with those professionals and work with them to create content that's going to make people genuinely care about those animals and also keep the animals' best interests at heart. Um, so whether it's the sloths, um, you know, if, 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 a, if there's this uh, company that's out there and they're saying they're rescue sloths, um, are, they are they backed by environmentalists? You know, if not, go, don't go to that company and formulate a nice post. Go to the environmentalists who actually understand the problems that the faiths uh, that the sloths are facing as a whole and work with them on creating content that's going to benefit the sloths. And as far as the uh, sort of a sub-community, I have not found a solid sub-community on TikTok yet. Um, the only the only real communities that I that I've uh, worked with are Animalia and 4Ocean. And I, I know that 4Ocean is a for-profit company. Um, but I know that they're they're doing work that, you know, most that not really any other company is doing. So I support them because they're actually getting work done. But at, at the same time, um, you know, a for a for profit company is it's kind of always questionable whenever they're doing good deeds like that. I guess, in my opinion. This is a question for both of you, both Nari and Jake. Um, would you say to date, social media? has been net positive or net negative for wildlife. Let's not talk about its potential because its potential is is positive, right? If it's used the right way, um, for sure. But would you say as of this date, you know, uh, where, you know, we're May, May 29th, May 30th, uh, 2020, do you think social media from its inception really about 15 years ago to today has been net negative or net positive for wildlife? Um, I, I guess I can go first. Um, I would say it's been, I would say it's been negative to this day. You know, as I was saying earlier, uh, building that community and being ready for a real opportunity is, is, is in the future. It hasn't come yet. That real opportunity hasn't come yet. So right now on social media, what we have, um, I used to be a landscape photographer. What we have are people going off trail, damaging wildlife, putting themselves in dangerous situations, um, and encouraging other people to do that through their through their photos. Um, it, it seems like the same thing's happening with the sloths, the same thing's happening with people riding elephants. Um, so right now I think it's, it's a real uh, negative impact. I think that a lot of creators have good intentions, but we haven't found the right way to go about it yet. Um, I'd, um, yeah, I'd like to comment on that too. Um, I think it's really, at least from my personal experience, it's negative as well. And because social media is such an eco chamber, you kind of see things that um, get popular with loads of people as well, but it's also the people you follow. So I think it really depends on the types of organizations and the types of people um, you choose to follow um, that, that can change this. So since I've started engage, engaging with Animalia and uh, just thinking about this problems deeper, um, I see content that is more relevant and more positive. Uh, but when I was outside that, um, the general kind of 
line is definitely negative and, and not uh, introspective, not thoughtful. Um, so the more organizations start doing great content, um, the, the better it can get in the future and people will care more and hence hear about it more and do the right thing versus um, the selfish or not really informed actions that we are taking today. Yeah, I think that's right. If, if, Jake, what would you say to, so there's three sort of level of a uh, three constituencies in, in social media, let's say that's there's, there's the platforms themselves, there's the content creators and there's the consumers. Um, we know the platforms need to do more to, to sort of regulate this. And some of them have done like Instagram to their credit has been, um, doing their part to sort of block elephant riding, dolphin swimming videos. If you hear, search those hashtags, you'll get recommendations that they don't condone this behavior. There's still a lot more to go. Unfortunately, there's a lot of gray area too that, you know, it's hard for them to sort of navigate things that are different from culture to culture. Um, but let's put the platforms aside for a second. Jake, you already mentioned how you, the advice you would give content creators, which is work with environmentalists, work with scientists uh, before you create content and share content and understand that. But I'm curious, what would you tell the consumer around what to share and not to share and understand that for the average consumer, right? We can't tell them really, well, if you see a post now go do a bunch of research on that animal, because that's just not how people are wired. And it's not how social media trains people. People does social media does not train people to do diligence and evaluation of what they're seeing. It trains them to quickly take action and get to the next video, the next photo um, and, and share and, and these, these types of things. So, what Jake, what advice would you give your followers? Would you give any consumer on TikTok to start there of how can you quickly sort of understand what is worth, what should be shared and what shouldn't be shared? Yeah, I would just say um, using a little bit of, of common sense, realize that animals aren't here, you know, for our enjoyment, our entertainment. If you see something, um, something going on and and you think to yourself something doesn't feel right here chances are it's not right you know so if if you see a video uh, of something that you feel is not right share that video and voice your personal opinion about why you feel it's wrong rather than seeing a video of a of a person or people taking advantage of an animal in a cruel way um, but making it look good Prevent, prevent sharing that. Or if you do share that, share it with, with your thoughts on why it's bad, you know? And, and if, if you even, if you see a video and like I said, you just have a feeling, but you're not sure that's whenever you should do a little bit of research, you know, try and figure out why you're feeling that way. Um, and chances are, you're going to find information about why it's making you feel that way. So, um, sharing the number one thing I could say to people is don't be afraid to be the voice for an animal in need of help, you know, share it and voice your, your, um, opinion about why you believe it's not right. Even if, even if you're thinking differently than most other people, you could end up being the only voice out there for that animal, um, to, to, uh, you know, look up, you know, help that animal out. Like, don't be afraid to speak up. Can you walk us through, uh, Jake? So TikTok is obviously a platform where the average video is roughly seven to eight seconds on the platform. Um, obviously, it, it sort of caters well as a result uh, for dance content, short comedy, um, meme content. Um, when you're talking ocean conservation, anything with substance, 
it's harder today on TikTok and it may get easier over time with swipe up to longer videos and other features they may, they may explore. But for today, you sort of have somebody for maximum 10 seconds, typically. Yeah. What is it like have, having to create content with real substance, such as ocean conservation content? And you have found your, your sort of niche in, you know, the quick parasite removal uh, videos, but for other content creators that say like, Hey, I want to use this platform to push conservation forward. What advice do you give them? And and how do you approach content creation on TikTok, or how should somebody approach content creation on TikTok if they're trying to push the right agenda forward? You know, the, uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I, a couple months ago, I wanted to start a movement, you know, just sort of start a trend of people picking up garbage or, or litter, duet this video of you picking up garbage. And there was quite a few, I think a few thousand people who actually did it, but there was 10 times that amount of people who watched that video and turned it into a meme, turned it into a joke and absolutely did not help at all. Um, so, and I mean, that's not, that's not the fault of the people. That's just the way you know, the younger generation thinks, and even some of the older generation thinks that way, you know, rather than helping, let's just try to benefit by turning this into a, a, a meme or whatever. Um, so you, you really have to try and think like your viewer. You have to think like them. People aren't on TikTok to, to um, have seri- like real serious education. They're there to be entertained. So if you can find a way to educate people while entertaining them at the same time. That's going to be key. You have to provide entertainment in your posts. So education and entertainment, you have to, to turn those into the same, into one in the same thing when you're making your content. Um, you have to, you're going to have to get really creative, find a way to do it, but it's, it's possible. I believe it's possible to do it with anything, you know, whether you're, uh, whether you, your entertainment comes in the form of comedy, which is, I, I think most of it is going to have to come in the, the form of comedy or come in a way that's, that's going to catch somebody off guard. Um, you, you can't just take the serious approach on TikTok. Um, it, it just doesn't work. You really have to incorporate entertainment into your education if you want to catch people's attention. So, Jake, we like to sort of do a bit of a rapid fire um, on uh, four questions we have. So I'm just going to ask you just whatever first thing comes to your mind on these things. Sure thing. Um, all right. So one, uh, what is your favorite book uh, on climate conservation environment? What, what book would you recommend people read? I I can't answer that. I haven't read a book uh, about it. Okay. Well, uh, I'm happy to recommend some for you. <laughs> Send me away. Um, what is uh, what is one nature documentary or film um, that is not well known? So don't think Planet Earth um, that you think is a is a must see. You know what? There's there's one that just came out, um, and I I haven't got the name down, but I just saw it, and I'm I'm going to get my son to watch it with me. Um, where they give animals uh, voices, they're literally doing exactly what kind of what I'm doing, but uh, putting entertainment and uh, a, a strong message together. I've seen the previews for it and I'm uh, it's on my to watch list. Um, Absurd Planet. Absurd Planet. And it's on Netflix, so I'm sure most people will be able to check it out. So watch that with me. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. 
Um, what about, is there another uh, TikTok or creator or YouTuber that you love um, and respect who, who also does sort of conservation uh, content correctly? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's a smaller account, but he's uh, he's uh, th- these two people are always trying to um, help me make it just a really positive difference. It's uh, it's Yuri Trebushnoy. It's spelled Y U R I Y T R E B U S H N O Y. Um, he he makes a lot of uh, outdoor wildlife content. Um, he's a smaller account. But he's somebody who's who's really wanting to use TikTok as a way to encourage other people to um, make a very positive difference. I'm not a, a part of any kind of like sub, you know, creator <laughs> group. But um, that's that's just one guy who's who's really trying to make a difference and um, always wanted to work with me to make a difference. So I thought I'd mention him. <laughs> we need to create a TikTok conservation house. We do. Yeah, like, lots of TikTok houses in LA um, that have nothing to do with conservation, of course. That are, um, but we need a we need a TikTok conservation house. <laughs> I think I think that could be really beneficial and really successful. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's get on it. <laughs> um. All right. So next question: What is your favorite animal on Earth? You got to pick one. Okay. If I could pick one, I think it would be. Um, I think it would be the orca. The they're uh, yeah, they're they're incredible apex predators. They are uh, way smarter than than we can even imagine. You know, we we have no idea how smart they are. All we know is that they're very smart. Um, and uh, I, I I just love the social aspect of them. You know, I I think they're just as just as smart as humans. You know, and um, they're you can you can just tell that they're. They're more advanced than most other animals, but but then again, at the same time, there there's we don't understand animals, you know. People don't understand understand animals. Um, orcas are just the ones that stand out to me, but I, I think all animals are far smarter, far more capable than than humans give them credit for. Hundred uh, percent. Last question: What is the one behavior change you think everyone should and can adopt? to fight for this planet. So like, like an everyday thing, if you had to pick one that everybody can do and should do, what is it? Man, it's just, it's just take, take it seriously to just try and take it a little more seriously. Ask yourself, ask yourself what you can do today. If you're presented with an opportunity to, to make a difference, that's, that's really all it takes is, is seeing an opportunity to help and just, just doing what you can to help, you know, don't look at it as a, as a joke. Don't think of it as, you know, Oh, I don't have to do this. Somebody else will pick this up or, or, or whatever, like be that person that's going to pick it up because literally everybody, everybody knows that if everybody pitched in just a little bit, these problems would almost completely go away, but nobody, Nobody takes it seriously enough. And I just think that if everybody just tried to take it a little bit more seriously, these problems, give it a little more thought that I, the world would be a way better place, of course. So I think that's something everybody can just try to do a little bit more, I think. 100%. Well, uh, Jake, it's been a pleasure hanging out. It's been a pleasure getting to know you personally for the last six months. Yes. And we uh, we will get to Costa Rica together. 
Um, I promise you, um, for folks that we have an animalia trip to Costa Rica to work with, um, uh, sea turtles down there that was scheduled for April, but obviously postponed from the pandemic. We'll be bringing it back as soon as we can. If folks want to join us and join Jake and, um, yeah, any, Nari, any last words from you? Um, no, I just wanted to say thank you again. And, uh, yeah, I really admire the work that you do and it's, it's, there should be more people like that. And I hope, uh, the army that you're building, uh, will create loads more people that will have their own armies. And then that's all we need to solve this problem. Just people becoming more aware and doing more. That's right. I, I appreciate you saying that to me. And I, I appreciate you guys wanting to be a part of that army. So um, sincerely, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for um, inviting me to Costa Rica. I, I'm so stoked about that. I've, I've never been out of the country for one. And two, to have the chance to work with something as incredible as <laughs> sea turtles. I mean, who gets that opportunity? I'm, I'm so blessed uh, to, to have been invited to that. So thank you. Absolutely. And thank yeah, as Nari said, thank you for all the all the work you're doing, putting the right message out there and we'll continue uh we'll continue to follow you and watch your exponential growth. Thank you guys. All right. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Nari. Thanks. Take care. Bye. All right.